welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on November 13th, Lord's Day Service. I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may our hearts be easily impressed by your word and sensitive to every impulse of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sinful nature means that people want the results without doing the hard thing. People want to be fit without diet and exercise. People want to be rich without virtuous and intelligent hard work. And... People want the glory without traveling the hard road. And this is just one of the reasons the disciples don't understand Jesus' passion predictions, like we see in verses 32 through 34. There are three passion predictions in Mark's gospel. That is where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. There's three such predictions in Mark's gospel. And each one is followed by the disciples' misunderstanding. Three times Jesus predicts his crucifixion. And in so doing, Jesus establishes the significance of his death and resurrection for defining discipleship. And yet the disciples misunderstand. In verse 37, we see that misunderstanding on display. In verse 37, James and John asked to sit on Jesus' right and left hand. Now, in the Old Testament, the right hand of the king was a place of prominence, 
and the left hand of the king is the second place of prominence. In Jesus' response, he is trying to teach them that the suffering Messiah is at the center of their discipleship. And he's also trying to teach them that he is that suffering Messiah. But they don't understand. They don't understand that Jesus' death and resurrection defines discipleship. And they don't understand that the way to glory is through service, self-denial, and suffering. Now, all of this is emphasized in Jesus' words in verse 45, when he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here, Jesus predicts that he will die as a ransom. He has come as God the Son to earth to die as a ransom. And we see this language elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom. And this ransom concept comes from the Old Testament. Ransom has two meanings in the Old Testament. First is that a property or a person could be ransomed. And so if a piece of property was lost or if a person was in debt they became an indentured servant. And that property or person could be ransomed. That is, they could be redeemed. And it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to ransom them or to redeem them, often by paying silver or gold. And that's why you read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, you were ransomed not with silver or gold, as was the common way of ransoming someone in the Old Testament. You're ransomed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The second meaning of ransom in the Old Testament means that the destroyer, or excuse me, the oppressor could be destroyed. So the second meaning is that the destroyer, or excuse me, the oppressor could be destroyed. In other words, ransom can happen not by paying the price with silver or gold, but ransom can happen by destroying the enemy outright, by destroying the oppressor. And this is the story of Moses and the Exodus. God ransomed Israel, not by paying silver and gold to Pharaoh. God ransomed Israel by raiding and destroying Pharaoh's house and setting Israel free. And so then when Jesus comes here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and announces, I am the Messiah and I have come to be the ransom, that means first... There is a debt to be paid, and it means, second, that there is bondage that needs to be destroyed. So what is the debt that needs to be paid? In other words, what is our debt that we owe? Well, the debt we owe is that we have earned God's just wrath. We've earned it. That's what Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you earn. So you've earned it. That's your right. The most fundamental right you have is death. You have earned death. Death is the debt we owe to God. So that's our debt. Well, what are we in bondage to? Well, we're in bondage to sin. Sin has enslaved us. And so Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom to destroy sin's power over us and set us free. 
But also in the Old Testament, the ransom concept is that God himself does the ransoming. For example, Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 talks about God ransoming his people from death. Psalm chapter 49 verses 6 through 8 talks about how wealthy men aren't rich enough to ransom people's souls. And the implication is that only God can do that. Psalm chapter 69 verse 18, David asks God to ransom him. In Psalm chapter 111, verse 9, God ransoms his people and then establishes the covenant. In Isaiah chapter 35, 45, and 51, God ransoms and brings people to the new Zion. In Isaiah chapter 43, we see prophecies about how the suffering Messiah is the fulfillment of the new restoration, the new exodus. And so, in the Old Testament, the ransom concept is that God himself does the ransoming. And now Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 45 of Mark's gospel, I am the ransom. I have come to ransom myself for many. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you who put your faith in the Messiah who has come to be the ransom for you? Well, it means for you way more than psychological wellness. It means for you way more than emotional well-being. Jesus Christ is the ransom. Jesus Christ gave his life. We, therefore, experience eternal forgiveness. Jesus Christ paid the ransom, which means by faith in him, we are free from the bondage and condemnation of sin. Jesus' death is our only hope for escaping the debt we owe to God. Jesus removes the Father's just wrath by enduring the punishment we deserve and by paying the debt we could never pay. And by faith in Jesus, that means you are ransomed. The debt is paid and the oppressor is destroyed. Your sins are canceled and sin's grip on you is no more. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And that is the fundamental foundation of this entire scene we read about here. So with that meaning established, with the ransom meaning established, let's remember now what's actually going on in this passage. This passage starts, remember, with Jesus' third passion prediction because Jesus is teaching them the glory path. And the glory path is patterned after the suffering Messiah in at least three ways. And so the first way to glory is service. Notice in this passage that the way to glory in Jesus' kingdom is through service. So picking up here in verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So glory in God's kingdom is not modeled after the ruthless rulers of the world. That's what verse 42 is saying. Rather... Glory in God's kingdom comes by living as servants modeled after Jesus' death. That's verses 43 through 45. And verse 45 says that Jesus came to serve. 
And that's the verb form of the noun servant in verse 43. So we have the noun servant in verse 43. Then we have the verb serve in verse 45. So a servant is someone who serves, but not themselves, who serves others. That's a servant. A servant is someone who serves others. And in the first century world, the typical servant performed menial tasks. This is not a glorious thing. A servant scrubs toilets. A servant does menial tasks, the unpleasant tasks, the unglamorous tasks. So then what does it mean for us? The glory path is service. What does it mean for a Christian to be a servant to others? Well, our service, remember, is patterned after Christ's giving His life for us. Service, therefore, is doing things for others that are costly to ourselves. That's the biblical definition of service. So if you're going to be a servant, that means you're going to be someone who does things for others at great cost to yourself. Service is, according to the biblical definition, sacrificial. Because remember, it's patterned after Christ's sacrificial death. But service is not just doing anything. Service is not just doing to do so I can say I did it as so many parachurch organizations seem to be doing. No, Christian service, biblical service, means doing things that provide actual benefits for people, both temporal and eternal benefits. And maybe you say, well, I have a hard time doing that. I have a hard time making personal sacrifices that are costly to myself in service to others. Maybe you say, I just don't take joy in that. I'd rather serve myself. I enjoy that better. Serving others has never been a part of my life. It's not a habit I have. It's not something I find enjoyable because my life is about self-expression because that's what I was told makes me happy. Service to others doesn't make me happy, but serving myself does. But then maybe you say, I want to change that. I want to follow the glory path of service. How do I change? How do I change from enjoying serving myself and self-expression to actually serving others like Christ served others? Well, if that's you and you actually want to change, understand first that the gospel of Jesus Christ includes the power of the Spirit to change your heart, the power of the Spirit to incline your heart to love different things, to desire different things, to want to serve others at great cost to yourself. So the power is in the gospel message itself, in the Spirit given to you. And so how do you change in the power of the Spirit from being self-serving to serving others? Consider four things. The first thing you must do is you must start asking the right questions. Wrong questions lead to wrong answers. Right questions tend to lead to right answers. And so you need to start asking the right questions. And so people in their sin nature too often ask the wrong question, like we see in verse 37 with James and John. They ask the wrong question. The wrong question is, how can I achieve maximum prestige and applause for myself? That's the question in verse 37. That's the wrong question that leads to the wrong answer. That question, how can I achieve maximum applause to myself, maximum prestige for myself, that question is driving so much of the modern world and the modern confusion. 
Disciples of Jesus Christ, however, must ask very different questions. And so, if you want to change, start by asking the right questions. When you wake up in the morning, ask the right question. Ask, how can I bless others today? The right question, more often than not, will lead to the right answer. When you wake up in the morning, ask, how can I do good to others? How can I show the love of Christ to others? And so, instead of waking up and asking, what can I do today to receive the maximum amount of praise for myself? Ask, how can I do good to others? You see, change happens when the Spirit inclines your heart to ask the right question. And so, the first thing you must do is ask the right question. And then the second thing you must do is you must pray. You must pray that the Spirit gives you power to actually go and serve. See, the right question is probably going to lead you to the right answer, but just having the right answer doesn't mean a whole lot if you're not going to actually act on it. And so now you must pray that the Spirit gives you the power to go and serve. Pray and embrace service. Give yourself to it. And take people with you when you serve others. Find joy in helping others because Jesus found joy in helping you. So if you want to change from being self-serving to serving others, ask the right question. Pray that the Spirit gives you power. Third, you need to cultivate Christian motivations for serving others. Cultivate Christian motivations for serving others. See, so much of Christian service today is this idea of doing something to fend off this warped sense of white guilt. But that's not Christian service. That's not why we serve. So much of Christian ministry today is motivated by the wrong thing. So it's a bunch of people doing a lot of things, lots of activity. But it's for the wrong reasons. See, the point is not just tasks. The point is not just doing something. The point is that underneath that, you have a servant heart. You're developing a servant attitude. And so, the best way to develop an attitude like Christ is to start serving others like Christ served others. And that means serving others with joy. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, we're told in Hebrews. We need to reclaim a joyful, servant-hearted attitude. We need a cheerful bravery in serving others. And the reason it's bravery is because service, remember the definition, service is by definition sacrificial. It's at great cost to yourself. So all Christian service is a great risk for you. You're sacrificing something, and so this requires bravery. And so Christian service is cheerful bravery. Now, the modern person walks around expecting and demanding that others do things for them. They assume that others should do things for them. They often articulate how others should do things for them. Hear it clearly, this is not an attitude of a disciple of Jesus Christ. We cannot operate with the assumption that when we walk into the room, what can all of these people do for me? How can all of these people serve me? That is not an attitude of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Christians don't seek ways for others to serve me. We seek ways to serve others. So to change from being a self-serving person of self-expression to a person who serves others. You need to ask the right questions. You need to pray in the power of the Spirit. You need to cultivate Christian motivations. And fourth and finally, you've got to overcome the modern revolutionary mindset. 
the modern person thinks in terms of changing the world. We're going to change the world. And the problem is that people who want to change the world don't care about doing the little deeds. The Christian ethic of service means that there are many great deeds done in the small struggles of life that don't really measure on a scale of change the world. These are the noble and mysterious triumphs of the kingdom of Christ that few people will see, mainly because they happen inside your home. And that's where all of this starts, inside your home, with your family, with those who are closest to you. And so in this passage, Jesus Christ is laying out the glory path, and the first way to glory is service. The second way to glory is self-denial. Look with me at verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, the question here is the opposite of self-denial. This is self-elevation. James and John want to be somebody. And that feels very modern somehow because modern people are obsessed with being somebody. That is, receiving recognition as someone special, deserving special things. And in response to that, Jesus says this, look at verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. We just considered that. Now verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. See, the glory path is self-denial. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. And maybe the hardest part of Jesus' words is that he frames discipleship as self-denial rather than self-realization and self-expression. And so that's hard for modern people to hear because self-denial, it's difficult in the modern world. The modern sense of self is not to deny it. It's to put it out there for everyone to see. And if they don't love it, they hate you. That's the modern sense of self. The modern sense of self is to express it, express it all. And if you don't, you're not authentic. In modern self-help, love is redefined as celebrating another's self-expression. And hate is redefined as disapproving of that self-expression. The new morality of the self is a therapeutic ethos stressing self-expression, self-realization. There's a preoccupation in the modern world with the self and selfhood. Psychological happiness, we're told, is the first priority of your life. And it should take precedence even over moral character. And so modern people tend to think of happiness as having little or nothing to do with a virtuous life. That's why these words that Jesus speaks here in these verses are so hard for modern people to hear. And the problem with all of this modern psychotherapeutic stuff is that God made man to be satisfied not through self-definition and self-expression. That always leads to misery in God's world. God made man to be satisfied by living under the ruleship of the God who defines the world, including you. That's joy. That's happiness in the world God made. 
And a central part of that definition is a spirit-wrought self-sacrifice and self-denial, a devoted life of service to those around you. The happiest people in the world are those living under the rulership of God who find joy in serving others as Christ served them on the cross. That's Christian joy. That's Christian happiness. When people are filled with a psychotherapeutic sense of the self, it just becomes hard to deny yourself. And so contemporary thinking says that to be great, you have to be unique. To be great, you have to stand apart from everyone else. And to be great, you have to value your feelings over virtue. The psychological man says the point of life is to seek pleasure and be served. Jesus says in verse 44, the point of life is to deny the self as Christ Jesus denied the self. And so the first way to glory is through service. The second way to glory is through self-denial. And then third, the third way to glory is suffering. So look with me now at verse 33. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. So James and John asked Jesus, How do we get glory? And Jesus' answer is about cups and baptism. Now, obviously, there's a sacramental element to Jesus' answer. I mean, baptism is one of the two sacraments. And then the cup is a necessary part of the second sacrament, the Lord's Supper. So his answer is sacramental. And the Old Testament background to this cup concept is rich. It goes back to Psalm chapter 11, verse 6, where the wicked drink the cup of judgment. The wicked drink the cup of wrath. And then on Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17, Jerusalem drinks the cup of the Lord's wrath. And it says there that they have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The dregs are the little bits you find at the bottom of the cup. And so the cup that Jesus references here in his answer, it's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of wrath and judgment. And he refers to this again explicitly in Mark chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the cup of cursing that Christ drinks on the cross and he drinks the cup to the bottom for his people. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean that Christ has drunk the cup of wrath on our behalf, the cup of cursing on our behalf? Well, it means a lot of things. It means our justification with God by faith in Christ. We stand right with God. We're forgiven of our sins. We're reconciled with God. We're in right relationship with God. We're part of his people. But also, it says in verse 39, that this means that his disciples will drink the cup too. We also will drink the cup of suffering. Now, we've got to get our theology right here because we don't drink the cup of wrath. Christ has 
once for all drunk the cup of wrath so that we don't have to. The curse was laid on Christ. The curse is not laid on us. But we do have to drink the cup of suffering. Why? Well, it's because Jesus drank the cup of suffering. And we must be conformed to his image. As the head does, so the body does. The disciples' suffering is patterned after Christ's suffering. And so we drink the cup Jesus drank. We go through the suffering because Jesus went through the suffering. And in this way, we are refined into Christ-likeness. It says in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What makes you think you're going to be any different? And so... We drink the cup of suffering, and then we're also baptized, it says here. We have a cup, and then we have baptism. We're baptized into the baptism of Christ. So you think of the baptism of Christ. You think back to Mark chapter 1, where Christ, ordained as a priest, receives the baptism that the priest received. The Spirit comes down on him. Maybe you think of Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. It talks about how through faith we're baptized into Christ's death. Well, just like Jesus' baptism put him on the way to the cross in Mark chapter 1, so too our baptism puts us on the way of suffering and self-sacrifice. And notice that Jesus drinks the cup first, then we drink the cup, and Jesus is baptized first, and then we are baptized. And so, in conclusion, look again at verse 45, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we know what this verse means. This is usually one of the most commonly memorized verses for children, and it should be. And if you don't have this memorized, I encourage you, memorize Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for in it we have the heart not only of the gospel, but of Christian discipleship. So we know what this means. We can probably quote this verse. But think about this. Jesus came to serve, so let him. Jesus came to serve, so let him serve. Jesus came to wash feet, so let him wash feet. In other words, the first job of a Christian is to receive the service of Jesus Christ. You will never live to learn to live as a servant until you receive from Jesus. And so, receive Jesus, receive his love, receive the freedom he gives, and receive his grace. You don't deserve his love, you don't deserve his forgiveness, but he gives it anyway. Will you receive it? This passage teaches us that Christ has ransomed his people, and the way to glory is through service, self-denial, and suffering. But the point for you isn't to try harder. The point is that Christ has ransomed us and it is finished. In Christ, the debt is paid. In Christ, the enemy is defeated. And so we don't have to hide from Satan or sin's creditors. In Christ, we are set free to a life of joyful service, self-denial, and suffering. This is the glory path. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, when we are tempted to run from serving you and sacrificing in service of others, let us remember that you have paid the ransom price for us. 
When we deny ourselves and serve others, it's because we want to fully and clearly walk the path that you have walked. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.